What up, film fans? How was your Christmas? Did you have a nice time? Did you have a good New Year? Did you eat your body weight in chocolate? I certainly did, and I don't regret it. Because you got to do it every now and then. Why not? Why not? Oh, he's got a vape. He's one of those douchebags. Um, how's it all going? Anyway, I said that like this was interactive. Maybe I should start live streaming and then it would be interactive. Um, yeah, so I'm not doing a particular film analysis this time, this week. Uh, and sorry again that this isn't coming out on a Monday, but the pod is no longer called Movie Mondays. So I can put it out whenever I bloody well want. And the Christmas period is a very busy time for everybody. And it was for me. So, um, yeah, I, you know. The schedule has been a little bit looser than it normally is. However, what I am going to talk about during this podcast is um, one of my favorite things to do over the Christmas period. You know, because you normally get a little bit of time off, you know. I'm sure most of us have worked jobs where... You either don't get a lot of time off or that uh, that period between Christmas and New Year's where you're forced to work and everyone else is off and they don't have to work and they rub it in your face and it's a nightmare. But most of us, somewhere along the way, regardless of job, will get a little bit of time off. And one of my favorite things to do that will come as no surprise to anybody listening during that time is to watch a shitload of films. Not necessarily Christmas films. Not too bothered. There aren't that many good Christmas films. I've said it. I've said it. You got Die Hard. If Nightmare Before Christmas counts as a Christmas film and not a Halloween film, then we'll have that. This is going to piss people off. Elf is overrated. Mainly because Will Farrell is slightly overrated. He just doesn't do a lot for me. He's a, he's a phenomenal improviser. His improvisational skills are almost second to none. Um, But his comedy and stuff doesn't do tons for me. So Elf is overrated. Yeah, I said it. You can stop listening if you want. I don't give a shit. Uh, So I didn't watch loads of Christmas films. Do you know what it is a banging Christmas film actually that I watched last year? Not for the first time, but I did watch it last year. Is The Night Before with... um, Seth Rogen and Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Anthony Mackie. That film is well good. <clears throat> I'd recommend that if if you like Seth Rogen style comedies, you know. Um, yeah, but what did I watch this year? In the run up to Christmas, I revisited a franchise that I haven't watched for years, and I thought about doing a, a an own my own individual <laughs> an individual podcast on it. Uh, but instead, I think I'll just talk about it now. And I haven't seen the latest one in this franchise, and that is the Underworld franchise. I loved this franchise as a kid or a, or a teen, or I think I would have been a young teen um, for sure. I loved that franchise as a kid. You know, it was so cool. This is before Twilight ruined vampires. Yeah, I said it. I'm pretty sure that's like the common idea, though, is that most people agree Twilight ruined vampires. Vampires used to be cool, man. They used to be like these like, I mean, they're they're, they're kind of always sexy, but they used to be these like badass, like borderline gothic, you know, just fucking just cool. They were cool. And then Twilight made them lame. Yep. However, the vampires in Underworld... Yeah, it's the it's the vampire. If you don't know it, it's the vampires versus werewolves. Is the premise of it? It's a war that's been going on for hundreds of years, maybe even a thousand or two thousand years, whatever. Um, and the whole thing is, you know, this there's this a few different covens of vampires, and they have these particular vampires called death dealers, which go around um, hunting werewolves because werewolves are considered just like rogue, animalistic sort of chaotic beings that they don't want sort of, you know, peeling back the layers of, like, uh, subtlety and secrecy amongst the the immortals of the world. You know, they'd rather sort of keep the gen pop 
general population uh, in the in the in the dark about all of it. This grape favored grape flavored vape is fantastic, by the way. Um, that's the main reason I've started vaping is because they taste so damn good. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, and so Underworld is just full of these immense action scenes with, um, like, you know, vampire. It's it's very Matrix inspired, right? So there's a lot of slow mo to make action scenes appear cooler. Like, there's even a scene where the main character, Celine, played by the wonderful Kate Beckinsale, is um, trapped down the end of a, a corridor or a hallway in an apartment building. And there's these werewolves, like, running along the walls and the floor, like, towards her. And she's heavily outnumbered, so it's not going to, like... she's not, It's going to be tricky for her to survive. So her way out ends up being to just shoot the floor. She has, like, these automatic pistols. That's, like, her weapon of choice throughout most of the franchise, these automatic pistols. And she just, like, spins around in a circle, aiming her pistols at the floor and just shoots a circle. And then the floor just, like, falls away and she falls through. And then she can leg it away from from the lichens, they call them, werewolves, to you and I. Um but like just her it, the shot is her shooting the floor and she spins around in a circle and you think well that looks lame doesn't it looks amazing cuz they put it in slow mo it's like so matrix and she's wearing like this long leather coat you know so it's like it's like so matrix inspired and the first and second film are littered with like badass moments like that where they just like really lean into this you know sort of slow-mo heavy and to be fair the choreography and the setup and the scenes of these like particular action sequences is really good um and uh, to be honest as as the series goes on i haven't seen the latest one i think it's called blood wars but you got underworld underworld I can't remember what the tagline is. You got Underworld 3, Rise of the Lycans, where they go back in time and show you how the conflict sort of like started between Lycans and and uh, vampires. And then you've got the fourth one, which I think was called Awakenings. That is by far, I haven't seen the latest, the one after that one, but of all the ones I have seen, the first four I have seen, that is by far the worst one. Um, massive spoiler alert for the entire franchise. At the end of the second one, so... Bear in mind, I said the third one is a prequel, so it goes back in time. At the end of the second one, they kill the original vampire and the original werewolf, which means everyone who is infected by that bloodline, so every subsequent vampire and subsequent werewolf, ceases to be a vampire or a werewolf. They just go back to being human, right? Which makes sense that then the film that follows that one is the prequel film, because... They should have nowhere else to go with the storyline in the future because all the vampires and all the werewolves don't exist anymore because the OGs are dead. Right? Fair enough. Bring in the fourth movie. Suddenly the vampires and the werewolves are back and they don't address it. (laughs) They just... So that's like big plot hole number one. They just don't reference it. It's just not part of the story. They're just like, yeah, we're back. Except humans have found out about them and start hunting, you know, both types down and werewolves are pushed to near extinction and vampires are, I think, the same pushed to near extinction as well. It's, um, yeah, it's it's heavily flawed. But it does bring in a a few cool ideas. Um, Like there's these like super roided werewolves that have been like i think that i can't quite remember but they're doing like a lot of like crossbreeding and genetic mutation and stuff to get like these absolute roided up werewolves out Um, and they do some cool stuff with um like bringing vampires back to life like this vampire um theo theo james is in it um who by the way does some wonderful voice acting for a vampire in castlevania if you haven't seen castlevania the animated show on netflix it's wicked it's well good it's worth watching some of the dialogue's a bit here there and everywhere 
Um, you know, some some of it's really sl- some of the dialogue is sloppy, but that's normally reserved for like the uh, the nothing characters. You know, like the the ones that are there for like one scene and then they get their head ripped off by a vampire or whatever. Like that fill in the blank kind of pointless dialogue is a bit slapdash. But then the dialogue that actually matters, the you know the relationship building dialogue between the main characters, the main plot point dialogue. That's all legit, and the voice acting in it is really good. You got um, is it Graham McTavish, the guy who was Mother Superior in Train Spotting, Scottish geezer. He plays Dracula. He voices him really well. Um, you got ah, oh, what's his name? He plays uh, the main dwarf in The Hobbit. Ah, oh, what's the main dwarf's name? Thorin. Thorin Oakenshield. I can't remember his actual name, but he plays Thorin in The Hobbit. He voices Belmont. The, the main guy in Castlevania, who's basically like a kind of vampire hunter or slayer of mythical beings. Um, he's he's really good in it as well. He has this really like sort of world beaten, tired of all, tired of existence and tired of life. And, you know, that kind of like world weary, seen it all before, attitude and sarcasm and quips. Um and then there's a really, oh, I can't remember his name either, but there's a really good voice actor who voices Alucard, which is Dracula's son in Castlevania. Um, and he's really cool as well. Oh, and the, oh, who's the girl? Sorry, this is such a huge tangent. There's a girl, I can't remember the, the main female character in it as well, but she's like this magician who just conjures up like fireballs and stuff and lays waste to so many mythical creatures and, and monsters and shit. It's well good. It's a really good show. It's really good. I haven't even gotten into the villains of that show yet. There's like all these different vampire villains and stuff. It's really good. I would recommend the fuck out of that. It's it's, it's similar in style and tone to the animated Witcher movie on Netflix as well, if you've seen that. Uh, I can't remember what that was called. But it was like a prequel to the Henry Cavill Witcher TV show. Um, I'm not very up on my Witcher knowledge or... Um, Law or anything. I've like played a smidge of the games, so I'm not even going to get into that. Um, however, back to Underworld. I can't even remember what my original point was. Um, but I really like them. I really like them because I don't know, especially the earlier ones. It might be because of their products of their time, but like one and two, less so three, but still elements in three, they do a lot of like practical effects and you've definitely heard me speak about practical effects before with um you know instead of like cgiing a werewolf they'll actually get like a heavily makeuped either actor or it might just be like the sort of shoulders and head and it will be like an anim- animatronic kind of you know thing of a werewolf and they'll just you know use a sort of close-up just shoulders and head of it as it like goes to bite someone and stuff they do a lot of stuff like that and it just makes things look a bit more real and lived in like you can see the wispy hairs and stuff and if there's like a ganky bit of blood around the the werewolf's mouth or something it just looks cooler you know it just looks it's less distracting than cgi you know i'm I feel like I, I spend a lot of time sounding like I'm slagging off CGI. CGI is a phenomenal art form, a really phenomenal art form. Um, and credit to the people that do it and the people that do it well. I just prefer practical effects. I'm old school, you know. I'm I'm a fan of people like Tarantino and Scorsese and Christopher Nolan and, you know, these heavyweights that, have you have you noticed a trend in Hollywood that the heavyweight people, the heavyweight directors, as in the real heavyweight directors, Chris Nolan, Paul Thomas Anderson, Tarantino, those, you know, those real heavyweight people, they tend to favor film for shooting on as opposed to digital and practical effects. Just saying, there might be a correlation, just saying. Um, Underworld... Back to that. I'll try and edit out these long pulls on my vape. Um, Underworld has the amazing, the phenomenal Bill Nye. So if you don't know him by name, he's Sean's stepdad in Shaun of the Dead. 
he is the musician guy in Love Actually, another actually very good Christmas film. Um, the Holiday, also a very good Christmas film, actually. Um, you know, the guy at the start of Love Actually that sings, I feel it in my fingers. Uh, and he's um, Muggins in Pirates of the Caribbean. David Jones, he's David Jones, big squiddy octopusy bloke. So if you don't know him by name and you can't think of him from the other stuff I've mentioned, but you know Pirates of the Caribbean, you're not going to know what he looks like because he's a fucking squid in that. Um, but that guy, he is one of those actors that, oh, I love actors that do this, that just bring small elements of characterization to each individual part, right? And Bill Nighy is a subtle master of it. And one of the things he'll do best of all is the way he'll like wrap his mouth around certain words or pronounce certain words or even just throw in odd noises. They sound odd, but they fit his characters, right? So a big example that a lot of people will know more than Underworld is in... Um, Parts of the Caribbean, the second one. He's like, do you fear death? Just does a random, like, pop thing with his lips. For apparently no reason. But it fits his, like... Because he's a squid, so his lips are all rubbery. And, and you know, they look slimy. So a little, like, thing he does, like... It's more of a pop than a... Um, just kind of fits... And when he's playing, um, oh, it's not Victor. Is it Victor? Shit, I can't remember his name. When he's playing, he's like the head, he's one of the heads of the coven of vampires that Kate Beckinsale's character is involved with, right? So he's a real high prominent figure. And he's having a bit of a debate with Celine about how she's going about her business concerning um, this guy who's like, wanted by the lichens and and this that and the other mm -hmm. uh, i won't go too much into the plot just watch the film and to like dismiss her as she's speaking he just kind of goes like ah, ah. it's a bit like um another actor who's amazing at it that i just reminded myself of is the geezer in men in black he was in like full metal jacket he's goomer pile in full metal jacket but he plays oh and he was he's kingpin in the Daredevil and uh, Hawkeye and, and, you know, that Netflix, Marvel, Disney sort of crossover thing that they're doing with all that. He's the kingpin in that. Um, but he plays the alien guy in Men in Black and he does loads of, like, weird, odd character choices and, like, expressions and <laughs> noises and movements and stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's wicked at it as well. But Bill Nighy, like... The way he 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 words certain stuff, it's it's like obviously it's not the way he's wording it, but it's the way he's choosing to say the words written in the script. Um, ah, oh, what's a good example? Shit, I should have looked this up before I started recording. I may have to just like pause here and edit this this long gap out. Um, so there's a big thing in the okay, slight tangent. Under, one of the reasons that I love Underworld is because it really fleshes out and sets up its own mythology and its own like law, you know, law L O R E as well as L A W. You know, what can happen in that universe? What what are the do's and don'ts of that universe? And they have this thing where there's three main heads of the vampire coven: uh, Amelia, Marcus, and Victor. Victor is Bill Nye's character, right? And what they're supposed to do is two of those heads sleep. One stays awake for, I think, a century. And then when they wake the next one up, when they give them their blood to waken them back up, because they're sort of like catatonic in a, in a weird coffin, um, they transfer the memories of their entire reign and and the history of the vampires so that when the head of the coven the new head of the coven is awoken they have all the information up to that point so they can just continue the reign and it's basically a way that they leapfrog through time 
So, in a moment of desperation, Celine wakes up Victor way ahead of schedule and uses her own blood to do it and doesn't know how to transfer all the information and data correctly. So when Bill Nye is talking to her, he's like, you lack the necessary skills. And like, just, I don't know the way, maybe I should have just found like clips of it on on the TV and just like let you show it, but uh, let you show it, let you see it. Um, but yeah, if you if you watch Underworld or anything that Bill Nye does, just pay attention to like, he, he doesn't just say words, he like really wraps his mouth around them in, in a very peculiar but very like endearing way. It's almost like, you know how the way Christopher Walken talks? Like, you know, sometimes we're gonna go to a place and he just has that strange cadence that you're just like, keep talking. This is fascinating. He could be talking about bread, the crust, and the seeds, and the white, fluffy, doughy exterior. You, and you'd be like, okay, yep, yep. I'm fucking well interested now, mate. Do you know what I mean? Just Bill Nye, he has this, this particular just way of of delivering these lines but a lot of them as well because he's this sort of powerful vampire figure and he's pissed off that his coven has gone to shit and he's been awoken way ahead of schedule and he hasn't got all this information and everything a lot a lot of what he says is like wrapped in a kind of venom um and there's been like some treachery and and betraying happening behind the scenes in his coven as well so a lot of what he says is just like um stabbing at people with the way he speaks it's it's a really awesome performance it really is it's fucking banging uh bill nye just doesn't miss national treasure um what else did i watch over christmas ah i love i love a good whodunit like a murder mystery love them and for years well not years but since they came out uh, I wanted to get round to watching the Kenneth Branagh uh, versions of uh, Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. And I only, like, probably two, maybe four months ago, watched Murder on the Orient Express. I'd never read the the novel or anything. Is it Agatha Christie? Shit, who wrote that? Yeah, should know that, don't. Um... Yeah, only only recently watched that. So I had no idea, you know, who did it. But what I liked about that film, and to be fair, Death on the Nile as well, is not only is the cast absolutely stellar and the directorial choices in terms of, like, uh, camera setup and cinematography and the character relationships and all that shit, the costumes, the sets, all very, very exquisite um, but what I like about them is they do drip feed you just about enough information for you to make a good stab at who you think did it. Um, and then so this brings me on, because basically it's humble brag, but I figured out about halfway through Orient Express and Death on the Nile, I figured out who did it. Um, Actually, spoiler alert for Death on the Nile. Ready? Spoiler alert. Don't listen if you don't want it spoiled. There are two people responsible for the murders, and I figured out one of them. Not, I didn't include the accomplice in that. Um, but Murder on the Orient Express, I figured out, like, basically to a T. Um, so I was quite happy with myself. And when uh, Knives Out came out the ryan johnson film um i saw that when it came out and i can't i couldn't remember who was the um i basically forgot a lot of the storyline i couldn't remember who did the murder or you know was basically the villain or whatever um and that's actually something that i don't mind i i quite like forgetting films because normally i have like basically a photographic memory with films and I can remember dialogue and plot points and all that shit, like, annoyingly well. And every now and then I'll forget. 
and that is when I want to watch the film again because it's like you it's like you get to watch it for the first time again but it's for the second time <laughs> um you know like there's a massive twist or well not a twist there's a massive incident at the end of or near the end of Martin Scorsese's The Departed that I completely forgot about and then when I watched that for the second time I was like holy shit balls um so yeah with Ryan Johnson's Knives Out I totally forgot what was happening and I was with my family over Christmas and Glass Onion had like just come out on Netflix and I was like oh we should watch that have you guys seen Knives Out and my parents are awful at remembering what films they have and haven't seen. So they said, if you're listening, you know it's true. So, um, And they were like, oh, no, we don't think we've seen Knives Out. And I was like, well, I don't... I'm pretty sure it's like a different story, different characters, other than Benoit Blanc, Daniel Craig's character. Uh, so you probably don't have to have seen Knives Out, but let's watch Knives Out anyway, because I liked it and I can't really remember it. So let's just watch that. And then, like, five minutes into Knives Out, they were like, oh, we have seen this film. Um, but, you know, when you already started it, you might as well carry on. So we rewatched it, um, and I couldn't quite figure out who it was in that. And I think maybe, upon reflection, but probably only just because I've seen all the puzzle pieces fall into place, that, like, maybe you could figure out Knives Out as you went. You might be able to stab a guess at it, but with Death on the Nile and Murder on the Orient Express... There's, like, definitive bits of evidence that if you're paying attention to, you can pick up on and, like, build a solid case. Whereas I feel like with Knives Out, there's a little bit more, like, is conjecture the word? Like, kind of guessing and, like, gut feeling and things. And then, you know, it things get revealed. Um, so I don't know if they give you just about enough. Which I, I don't mind for Knives Out. But I know, like, in um, in some episodes of the Sherlock Holmes series with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, there were, I'm pretty sure, there were a few episodes where, and a lot of murder mystery or just, you know, investigator things do this, and I find it irritating, where they don't give you enough of the puzzle to figure it out, and then, like, right at the end... They go, here's some bullshit the audience didn't know about, which has allowed our hero to solve the case. Look how good they are. And it's like, yeah, okay, I get that they're like a genius. You know, if it's like Sherlock Holmes or Benoit Blanc or... Um, oh, who's the geezer in Murder on the Orient Express? Fucking Kenneth Branagh's character. Whatever his name is. They're meant to be like these super intelligent genius detectives and investigators and, and all of that. So I get maybe that the film is like showing you or the series is showing you only these people could have solved that mystery. But it kind of feels like cheating just to pull some left field bullshit out of your ass and go, oh, you didn't see this coming. Whereas if you're watching a murder mystery, like if you're playing Cluedo, if you just pay attention to Cluedo, you can fucking figure it out. You know? So if you're watching a film like Murder on the Orient Express or Death in the Nile or The Glass Onion, which brings me back to the Ryan Johnson stuff, uh, you can figure it out. And that's something that I really enjoyed about The Glass Onion. So we did get round to watching the back, back to the original bit we did get around to watching The Glass Onion. The Glass Onion's banging as well. Both Knives Out and Glass Onion are wicked. Or Glass Onions, as my mum insists on calling it. Yeah, if you're still listening, just take that one on the chin. You know it's true. Um, yeah, they, they do give you enough. There's enough happens. There, there, okay, spoiler alert for Glass Onion if you haven't seen it. Ready? Three, two, one. Something happens halfway through where you find out one of the characters isn't who they say they are. And um, basically, uh, up until that point, you can't figure out the sort of second half of the movie. Okay, we're done with spoilers now. Don't worry about it. But from that point onwards, 
I was like, okay, I reckon based on X, it's got to be Y. Uh, and then there was like there was one other part of the puzzle that they definitely gave you enough to figure it out, but I personally didn't get it um, or didn't notice it. Um, but I was I was correct in terms of who was the villain, basically. Um, so I like that. I, maybe it's just an ego boost. Maybe that's what it is. I'm just being egotistical, and I like to, you know, have the bragging rights to say that I that I figured it out. Um, but I, yeah, I do kind of find it annoying and lazy with, with some films. Not this, is it always just detective movies or like that kind of stuff? I don't know. I I like there to have been breadcrumbs laid before, you know, like, can't think of any good examples actually, but there's definitely, there's definitely films other than like detective ones where you know the main twist or whatever is just some bullshit that comes out of nowhere it's like build me up to it you know like okay spoiler alert for inglorious bastards the tarantino film but that derails history and it does some shit that no one would have expected because it, it's a film based on world war 2 but they kill Hitler in a way that Hitler definitely didn't die. And that was the first time Tarantino sort of rewrote history. He's done it a couple of times since, but that was the first time. So when you watch that film, specifically in the era that it came out in 2009, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really have seen that coming. But it makes sense within the story because of the way the story unfolds and the way the plot points pan out and, you know, the characters themselves and their aims and their motives and, and all of that stuff. So it makes sense. But yeah, I mean, I'll try not to labor this point too much, but when you have, you know, some detective saga and there's like some missing piece of the puzzle and it ends up being some bullshit that no one's ever fucking seen or heard before. All right. Yeah, we'll slag off Twilight some more. Ready? Uh, believe it or not, I have read all of the Twilight books, so I am well within my rights to slag off this diabolical piece of garbage. Um, right at the end of the last Twilight movie, I'm pretty sure it happened similarly in the books because I remember being pissed off. But like, spoiler alert for all this bullshit... They build it up that there's going to be a massive fight between, like, basically the the team of heroes that you've been following for the whole saga and these bunch of, like, basically, you know, Nazi-esque vampires that think they're some sort of master race, right? They build it up, there's going to be a big fight. And you're like, oh, finally, some action in this nonsense of a love story. And that's not to say I don't like love stories. Remember I've said in other podcasts, True Romance is the best love story, closely followed by Baron and Luthien from Tolkien's work and Romeo and Juliet. I like a good love story. It's okay to like love stories. Twilight is horseshit. So they build up this massive fight, and then I can't remember if this bit happens in the book, but it happened in the last film, where one of the vampires on the good team, good team, is like psychic or whatever and she can like show you some future or some shit and she shows the main villain guy basically what will happen in the fight and he ends up dying in the fight and he's like ah maybe we shouldn't fight and then they just bring the like the whole thing is can the, the whole thing of it is is because Bella the main woman in it gets preggers by Edward and they're like can there be a baby vampire? Is that possible? Is that immoral? Blah, blah, blah. So they want to like kill them. The evil guys want to like kill all the good guys because they want to keep this baby. I think, I think I've got this right. And they're like right at the end, right at the end with no like suggestion or hint that this was even a possibility on the cards one of the good guys just brings some fucking nobody from the just the depths of space it's not set in space that was figurative just brings them in 
and goes, oh, by the way, this is a vampire baby that um, proves that it can be done and so we don't have to fight. So then instead of fighting, they all just basically shake hands and walk away. And like in the film, yeah, there you do get to see an action sequence of the fight because you get Muggins's like premonition, you know, the psychic one I was on about. You get her premonition of it. But ultimately it's not there are fuckle stakes or fuckle drama because everyone you're like, oh no, they died. The people I care about in this saga in this film have died. No, they haven't, because it was a fucking premonition. And they just reset it all. So it doesn't mean anything. So any emotion you had, like, oh, my favourite character's dead. They're not. They're fine. And everyone just shakes hands and fucks off. It's a stupid climax to... I wait. I'm so angry. <laughs> I'm still angry about it. <laughs> I read those books, like, 15 years ago, and I'm still angry about it. I just... I was annoyed that I wasted my time reading those books. and then And then subsequently fucking watching the films. And nothing happens at the end. You know? It would be like if at the end of Braveheart there wasn't an epic fight and William Wallace didn't get hung, drawn, and quartered. If they just went, ah, oh, you know what, English, you're okay. And the English went, yes, yeah, very well. All is well. And they just fucking shook hands and parted ways. It would be bullshit. Fuck Twilight. I can't even remember why I started slagging off Twilight now. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was about... <clears throat> it was about left-wing... Not left-wing. It was about left-field bullshit coming in and like playing a mass having a massive influence over the overall narrative unjustifiably and that is what i dislike and yes anyway what else can i talk about what else did i watch over christmas ah do you know what i did watch in preparation for the second one which i still haven't got around to seeing yet uh is i watched the first avatar movie um i hadn't seen that since it was in the cinema I don't think in like I don't know 2009 I want to say whenever it came out and I watched it twice in the cinema um both times in 3D and it's the that film at the time probably still is actually I haven't seen the second one yet was the best use of 3D I've ever seen in cinema and I'll tell you for why I'll tell you for why I fucking win is because they were using it to enhance your immersion into that world they were using it as like a world building device you know so what I mean by that is you know if you're on the set of like Star Wars you have all these different bits of set and scenery and costume and etc to like pull you into that world so the world of pandora in avatar is this like insanely kind of tropical mythical l luminous kind of weird world that like we haven't seen in in you know either our world or in cinema prior to that right so what they do is they to immerse you into that even more so you're not just looking at a bunch of like 2D bullshit is they use the 3D to like build it all out and and really like feel like it's all around you and immerse you in it and then there's all these kind of like weird firefly things that float around and it really does feel like you're right there with the characters and that is in my opinion the correct way to use 3D the incorrect way to use 3D is for gimmicks and I'm going to talk about Pirates of the Caribbean 4 that fucking terrible film I love Pirates of the Caribbean series 1, 2, amazing 3, not bad 4, shit the latest one I can't remember what it was called but that one was actually surprisingly good Um, it, Pirates of the Caribbean 4 I went to see that in 3D with some friends when that came out the only point where they use any 3D in the entire film is right at the end where Cact Captain Jack Sparrow pulls out his sword and points it through the screen. So it, people in the cinema go, oh, he's pointing his sword at me. <sighs> That's the only point of 3D in the entire film. Why? Why? 
Yeah, whereas Avatar uses, you know, this this immersive world building sort of system and tool, and it's, um, yeah, it's that's what you want. That's what you want. I will allow the occasional 3D jump scare as long as the jump scare is earned and isn't predictable. Um, and obviously that will normally be reserved for horror movies, but then I feel like if you're watching a horror movie in 3D, you're constantly on high alert for jump scares. But, you know, I'll I'll, I'll allow it every now and then. Um, you have my permission, directors and filmmakers out there. Um, yeah, anyway, so when I rewatched Avatar the other day... Um, at the start of the film, I did start to notice that some of the dialogue and things was, I don't want to call it lazy, but it was easy. And like, okay, so the first time Jake Sully, as they call him, Jake Sully, um, Sam Worthington's character, the main guy in the film, the first time he gets into his avatar body, um, and starts running around. Sigourney Weaver's character is in her avatar body. And she's like, hey, numbnuts. And I love Sigourney Weaver. She's a brilliant actor. Really like her shit. But she's like, hey, numbnuts. And it's just like really cheesy, easy, easy cheesy. It's really cheesy, easy dialogue. Um, and that's why it seemed a little bit lazy. And like the main mineral that they're on Pandora to acquire, I nearly said obtain, is called unobtainium which i know avatar's been out a long time i know people have remarked on the silliness of that before i'm this isn't an original thought from me but it just emphasizes my point that some of the writing in that film is a little bit lazy but then i thought about the fact that it's like a two hour 40 something minute runtime and maybe sometimes when films are that long you just gotta get to the point with the dialogue maybe you do there are definitely films that would disagree, like The Hateful Eight. That's like a three-hour movie, and that is non-stop chitter-chatter dialogue, but it's Tarantino dialogue, so it's like fucking... It's a musical symphony, that dialogue. Um, but, like, you know, like I said earlier, he's in the League of His Own. Suck it. But, yeah, Avatar. Um... One of, what that film does so well, other than actually, to be honest, the 3D immersion and all the graph. I, I don't have a 3D t TV, um, but the the graphics and stuff they do look a little bit dated. I have a 4K telly, uh, so it's like pretty ping pong tiddly in terms of the specs that it can support. Um, and I tend to watch things in as high a quality and resolution as I can. <coughs> um. So, yeah, Avatar is starting to look a little little bit dated, which actually surprised me because I remember thinking at the time that it was one of the most, you know, like beautiful films I'd seen in terms of the quality of the effects and things. Don't get me wrong, some of it still looks incredible. Like um, that scene where Jake Sully has a, a torch, like a fire torch, and it's like the the first sort of, it's straight after he gets separated from his team of scientists and stuff and he's in Pandora for the first time on his own in the wild and it's starting to get dark and there's these weird like kind of skull fox jaguar things there's like a pack of them trying to eat him and you see some like nice close-ups of them with the the fire sort of reflecting off their leathery skin and stuff and that all that all still looks really cool um but some of the i don't know some of the other shots just don't look as good anymore you can tell that you're watching something that's got cgi behind it which again is maybe the reason that i really enjoy practical effects is because they tend to date better you know, not all of them do, don't get me wrong, but a lot of them do. A lot of them date a lot better. Um, they just have a longevity to them, I suppose. Uh, where was I going with that about Avatar? Oh, yeah, yeah. What, I mean, I'm a, I'm a sentimental dude. I've said on other podcasts that I like 
it doesn't take a lot in films for me to cry. Like I, I follow the journey of the film. So if I'm watching a horror, I want to get scared. If I'm watching, you know, like a rom-com, I want to laugh and I want to cry. You know, if I'm watching an action movie, I want to like, I sit there like I'm like bobbing and weaving and throwing punches and stuff. I literally sit there and fidget. Like I want my heart pumping and the adrenaline going. I, I follow the journey of the film, right? So with a film, and I'm I'm a spiritual guy anyway. You know, I, I have like what some people would probably argue are like almost paganistic views when it comes to like spirituality and and um, respecting the land. And I'm a, I'm a vegan, right? So respecting the land, respecting animals, respecting life, um, you know, all that kind of. I won't get I won't get too much into that. But so Avatar, what Avatar does really really well is. Um, like build that kind of uh idea up you know the people of of pandora and, and their like um you know love of each other and their connectivity and you could argue that some of it is a little bit on the nose in terms of their connectivity between like other living creatures where they have those like is it from their hair or from their tails i think it's from their tails but they have those like spindly bits that like interweave and then all of a sudden you can like you know share thoughts with like the, the big flying things that they ride that's how they you know speak to them to kind of control them but not in a like oppressive way um and all of that it's it re yeah, it it really leans into it and and builds that sort of thing up in a believable way where you're not watching it going oh this is a bunch of hokey shit you're watching it going like oh, okay i I get what these people believe, how they feel, how they think, and and all of that. Um, so then when you have, like... Sp I'm going to spoil parts of Avatar, and if you haven't seen Avatar yet, where the fuck have you been for the last, like, 20 years? Um, 20 years? 13 years? Yeah, it's probably more accurate. Uh, yeah, so when you get shit, like... I, I cried a couple of times during Avatar, and... I've seen it before. I remember the the main plot points and stuff, but like the scenes where um the humans destroy or the earthlings destroy home tree, which is the gigantic tree that the main group of um uh, Pandorians, is that what we're calling them? The blue people. Uh the main place they call home like it's destroyed in that by the earthlings and you know, all their reactions to it because it's their spiritual home. Um, like, that was tearing me up. And just how the performances of people like Zoe Saldana, who plays the main blue Pandorian person in Avatar, if you don't know. She's also um, Gamora in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, the green Guardians of the Galaxy woman. That's Zoe Saldana, if you don't know her. She's wicked. Um... <clears throat> her performance particularly from a vocal point of view in Avatar is outstanding like moments where she realizes um Jake Sully initially had like ulterior motives in terms of him forming relationships and infiltrating their civilization and all that and like befriending her and and this that and the other when she when when that gets revealed and she feels betrayed like the anguish in her voice or like spoiler alert again when her father the chief dies just this her voice does this real like raw emotional can i can i mimic it i'll try <sighs> yeah it's like that kind of like it's not like a ah uh, it's like <sighs> like you can tell that there's just this pure kind of like anguish coming through from it um and the the film's littered with these like heartbreaking moments like that where if you if you not ignore the the fantastical side of it in terms of like the explosions and the gunfire and the mythical creatures and stuff and if you actually sort of like pay attention to the nuances of uh the characters the dialogue the story and you know the people of pandora and things like that it is a really beautiful film, you know. I I didn't realize I knew it was beautiful aesthetically the first time I watched it, and I knew it was very spiritual the first time I watched it, and this, that, and the other. But that side of it, the 
the spiritual side of it and the storyline side of it, they really do hold up because uh, I hadn't seen it for probably at least 10, 11 years maybe. I'm pretty sure the only the only two other times I saw it was in the cinema when it came out. So it's been a long time since I've seen it and it definitely still holds up. Um, so I'm really looking forward to watching the second one. I haven't heard a lot about the second one. I, I, I try and avoid hearing other people's opinions or reading reviews or you know even seeing like a five star rating you know like an out of out of five rating or whatever um for every film i just try and go in as empty on it as i can oh what i should have have i got time to speak about it the ba- uh, the banshee of inishiran maybe i'll do a whole separate podcast on that the latest um is it martin mcdonough it's Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, the guys who did In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths and, and all of that. He's got to be one of the most underrated writer-directors in Hollywood, Martin McDonough. I'm pretty sure his name's Martin McDonough. I'm really sorry if I got this wrong. But he hasn't made a bad film. He hasn't made a bad film. In Bruges, Seven Psychopaths, uh, Ban- Banshee of Inishirin. He's got one or two under- others under his belt, I think. Hasn't made a bad film. Um... But I watched that as well, and what was the point of bringing that up? Oh, yeah, I I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know anything. I didn't even know that it was set in, like, the early 1900s. I didn't know anything about it when I watched that because I was like, it's that writer-director, it's Colin Farrell and it's Brendan Gleeson who have all worked together before and done some amazing shit. I'm already sold. I don't need to know anything about it. So I didn't know anything about it. I just watched it, and I was like, that was fucking brilliant. Um, yeah, so I don't know a lot about Avatar 2 other than it's going to have some water in it because it's called Way of the Water. Um, I did, I, one person I know said it was great and then I said, stop talking, don't tell me anything. And one other person said that they'd heard the storyline isn't very good, but it's otherwise a very aesthetically pleasing film. And I was like, stop talking. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I don't know when I'll get around to watching it. Maybe on the weekend. Um, but yeah, that's enough chat and script for today. We're just under an hour. Um, yeah, don't forget to please, if you're still with me, if you're still listening, and this incessant rambling hasn't bored you to tears yet, and you're still here with me, please do rate, review, and subscribe. You know, subscribe to YouTube, follow Spotify, subscribe anywhere else. Uh, if you got anything to say to me in any comments section or you want to drop me a DM on social media it's all at chatting script um, yeah just interact with me and thank you very much goodbye